Our Heavenly Father, we believe in the triune God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we believe that the Father sent the Son to redeem a people of every tribe and tongue and language, none of whom who deserved it. And we believe that he paid for them on the cross. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, who is sent by the Father and the Son to open dead hearts when the gospel is preached so that they would hear it and believe it. And so, Lord, we are asking that you keep your promise and that your Holy Spirit would help us hear your word and be made alive and strengthened and encouraged and holy and repentant by it. I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Brother Caleb read for us a very familiar passage from the Old Testament. And it is the call of Isaiah. And Isaiah sees the Lord. He has a vision. He sees the Lord high and exalted. And he sees him in his temple, in the sanctuary. And as he sees, as he has this vision of the Lord and his glory, just a trail of his robe, just the, the trail of his robe, not, not him in his fullness and his glory, he is struck with the holiness of God and the reality that this exposes him as a wretched sinner who has no right to be in the temple. He knows that if something is not done, he will be destroyed by the holiness of God. He has no position in the temple. Isaiah could have been smote in that moment by the glory of God. He could have been driven from the temple as an escape from the glory of God. Or he could be comforted that he is welcome in the presence of the holiness and glory of God because God atones for his sin. And the Lord atones for his sin there. He sends an angel, a terrifying angel, not one of those baby angels, a terrifying angel to take a coal and atone for Isaiah. From that moment, Isaiah can delight in the holiness and glory of God, not hiding from it or running away, but he can be confident that he should be there with the Lord because the Lord has atoned for his sin, God not making himself less holy, but making his people holy. And we've seen that the church is the temple of the living God. Not just the church, but each local church assembled by the word of God in obedience to the word of God, formed by the word of God as a church, as the word of God says this is a church, is a temple. It is a temple. And we're going to review just a few of those truths as we've been walking through this series in the last few weeks Truths which have been largely ignored in our day, um, even among churches who would affirm the gospel. First, we see that there is a day of judgment coming. And the church is supposed to be comprised of, built of living stones, holy stones, which will endure through the fires of judgment. The stones of a local church, uh, the people are not holy by their own works. 
but by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, who took their sin and who now clothes them with his righteousness and his own holiness. And so they're they're going to endure these living stones in the temple of the church. They're going to endure through the fire of the day of judgment because their day, the day of wrath, is in the past, not in the future. Their day of judgment, their day of the wrath of God took place when Jesus bore the wrath of God for their sins on the cross. And we saw this in 1 Corinthians 3. Next thing we saw is that the Holy Spirit intends to give assurance of salvation to those who are truly saved by faith in Christ. We saw that not all believers have this assurance in their souls, but if they are saved, it is their possession. And the church is actually designed to be a help in this assuring work of the Spirit. And so each church, sorry, each Christian, we saw this, that each Christian has the responsibility to join themselves to, to be a body part of a local church, which is a living temple made up of holy stones, a living body made up of body parts, members. We saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just a couple of verses to remind us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the feet, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 26, same chapter. 1 Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, all suffer. If, the, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so here we see that Paul is not, sorry, Paul is not only speaking of the one true universal church, which is comprised of everybody who ever believed in the gospel and everybody who ever will believe in the gospel. But he's also now talking about local churches because you can't commit to grieving with people you've never met or who don't know you. You can't commit to gathering with every Christian every week to worship, but you can commit to gathering with a local church. You can find a group of people formed as a church that you can commit to, who can expect these things of you, and you can expect them of them. These are the people who can expect you to be worshiping with them and to be rejoicing with them and to be grieving with them. Next, we also saw that there's a difference between gathering with the church and being a body part of a church. If you're not a body part or a member of that church, you are a welcomed and celebrated guest of that church, but you don't have a church. If you're not a body part of a church, a member, you don't have a church. You're a part without a body, which Paul says is pretty lethal. You have very little reason to be confident that you are actually redeemed because you're refusing one of the gifts of redemption which he purchased for you. The gift of being a body part of a body which has Christ as the head. This morning we're going to be looking at an essential part of what it means to be a church 
what it means to relate to each other as members or body parts. And you understand that the word there, the old-fashioned word for body part, would be members. The members of your body, if you hear that, you're like, oh, he's talking about my body parts. And this is judging. Judging. And this is a kindness which the Lord provides to his blood-bought people to prepare them for the day of judgment, judging each other. A gift that he actually uses to build assurance in his redeemed saints and also to expose false assurance in false converts so that they can run to Christ before the day of judgment and God's wrath against sin comes. And so for God's glory, the sake of his people, the Lord commands the church to judge its body parts, its living, building materials. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5, and we'll see this. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 all together in its entirety, and we can see this both commanded and illustrated. The gift of judging before the day of judgment. This is what it means to be a church and to be a body part of a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writing to the church in Corinth. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is no good. It's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, 
Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have any such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Before we get to the main points here of the sermon, I just want to just draw our attentions just a, a few things that we see here just as a survey of this text. First, notice that the church has a responsibility to know who's part of the church and who's not part of the church. How else are we going to know how, who's, who's, who to judge? How else are we going to know whose souls that we will give an account to the Lord for? We're going to have to give an account for people's souls. How do we know whose souls we're going to give an account for? Second, who is part of a church and who is not part of a church is not something decided only by the individual, but by the church as a whole and the individual. A person just on their own doesn't decide, this is my church. You see that? A believer asks to be part of the church, please treat me as a Christian. Please treat me as your Christian. 
And then the church either gladly agrees or just cannot agree to do that. Third, church cannot make a person a Christian and a, or not a Christian, and it can't know the heart. But they have a responsibility to recognize a Christian based on what the Bible says about how a Christian can be recognized. We already saw in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, it means that they confess faith in the gospel. Okay? And we see here and many other places that they have a desire for holiness. There's that pursuit of holiness. Yes, they're going to be wrestling with sin, wrestling against it. They're in constant need of repentance and grace, but they desire to be holy and they're pursuing holiness and they respond to correction with repentance. They can be brought to repentance, right? So they have confessed faith in the gospel and they have demonstrated a, 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 a desire to be holy and repentance, though yet still sinning, okay? So that's how God calls us to recognize a Christian, though we can't know the heart. Fourth, the gift of salvation purchased by Christ's blood is not merely forgiveness. It's much more than forgiveness. It's a place in the family of God. A place in the body of Christ, a body part of the body of Christ. A place in the holy temple of God. Now, one of the first judgments or tests, if you have been saved, is that you actually see this as lovely. We see this in John's letters to the churches. A great theme of his. A love for the brethren. See, if you see only forgiveness as lovely then you're not saved. But if you also see a place in the body of God, the temple of God, the family of God, if you also see that as lovely, then that looks like Christianity. To the local church is the place where God has provided you with the ability to exercise that and demonstrate that and delight in that gift. We saw in 1 Corinthians 12, you can't do it on your own Right? It says, how foolish for the eye to say, I have no need of the foot. You need each other to be able to do that. Now, you can't commit to every Christian in every single church. That would be impossible. You can't be accountable and known by every Christian. Some of them are dead and some haven't been born yet. And to overcome this, the Lord has graciously provided many local churches so that you can delight in this gift of being a part of a temple, being part of the body, being part of the family, you can experience that in, his, in local churches by delighting in body partship. Now, I know the, the word membership is not popular now. And that's partly because the modern church has broken Scripture, and he's essentially said, look, there's people who are part of a church, and then there's the members. It's kind of like this graduation for people who are like, more committed and maybe pay money and all that stuff. Garbage. Member biblically means body part. So it means you're a body part of a church. There's no such thing as being a body part if you aren't a member or a member if you're not a body part. Okay? So we see that, we can see that in this passage with Paul here. Fifth, and it's implicit here, but it's explicit in many other places such as Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6, 
this is not to be applied to children, okay? A child is under the authority and discipline and judgment of their parents, not the church. It's highly inappropriate for the church to judge or examine or make public statements about a child's spiritual state. It's kind of gross to think about that. Membership actually makes a public statement about a person's spiritual state. It doesn't mean then that children are not Christians. We pray that they are, and we actually rejoice that it's quite possible for them to become Christians long before adulthood. However, to make a public statement about that is very inappropriate while they're still under their parents' care and discipline. And Ephesians shows that children are to be raised within the church, hearing even hearing sermons, but that they are under the charge of mom and dad. The church is eagerly looking forward to the day when they can make that switch from being under the care and judgment of mom and dad to being under the care and judgment of the other body parts. You see that? We're looking forward to that day, but it's inappropriate to act that way early. That's because you're making public statements about somebody's spiritual well-being, okay? Sixth, you are woefully unqualified to assess your own standing before the Lord by yourself. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 12. It's foolish for the eye to say, I have no need of the hand or foot. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that your own ability to be certain is totally hindered by your own blind spots and weaknesses. And that's true of others as well, which is why they need you. Here we see this gift of judging before the judgment. We can get back to Paul's warning of a coming fire which is going to burn false building materials, but which cannot touch and burn true building materials because they've already been through the judgment in Christ's cross. So having a church is meant to be a gift for you from them, which says, hey, based on Scripture, based on what Scripture says is the definition of a Christian, Not an elite Christian or even a great Christian, but what the Bible says is a a definition of a Christian. We're, We're convinced you're a Christian. Because Paul and Peter talk in in ways that humanize stones. Maybe you can permit me the illustration of a large group of people on a large plane that is going to crash. It's gonna crash. Okay? Now people can be saved if they're clothed with a parachute that is provided freely to them. Now, they they are going to have to take off their backpacks and homemade parachutes. But the way the parachutes work, it's actually quite difficult to check your own parachute by yourself. You're going to need a group of people to do this. It's possible to think you have the right chute on, but actually not have the right chute on. It's also possible to fool a couple of people, but it's very unlikely to fool fool a group of them, especially if they're comparing your chute to the instruction manual. And I hope you can see that it is much better to judge before the jump than when you hit the ground. Oh, that was not a that was a false parachute. We okay, we we can determine that. No, way better to judge ahead of time. You see that. And so the donor of those parachutes instructs the people to huddle together in groups 
and then to put parachutes on and then to check each other's suits to be sure they're on correctly and to help them put them on if they're not on correctly. Now, there's some people who don't believe the plane's going down. There are also some people who believe it's going down, but they also think, look, I could jump and I could survive. I don't need a parachute. It is going down. There's a crash, but I'm all good. I can fly. And there's also some people who have been making their own homemade parachutes out of tissue paper. There's also some evidence that an enemy has secretly hidden some defective parachutes. But groups who gather together and check according to the manual, they can be assured that they'll be able to spot this. There are also some people who believe there's going to be a crash, believe that they do need a parachute. They also agree that only one kind of parachute's going to do, and they also believe that there is counterfeit parachutes, but they refuse to join one of these groups because they don't want their chutes to be scrutinized by somebody else. I mean, what if they're missing a strap and somebody points it out? That would embarrass me. I don't need a group. Maybe I'm just going to hang out with some of these people and listen in on what they say about parachutes and crashes. But I'm going to refuse to be part of a group and, keep, and ask them to keep an eye on my parachute. I mean, I, it's embarrassing. I hope you understand. It hurts my feelings. There are also some groups. There's a group that sees a guy in their group who is clearly wearing a tissue paper parachute. He's in their group. He's wearing a tissue paper parachute. They all know it's true. But they don't feel it would be appropriate to tell him because it might hurt his feelings before the jump. And besides, if they tell him his shoot is defective, he might leave their group. They don't want to lose him. There's also people who are wearing legitimate parachutes, who love the manual, who love the shoot, but they worry if they're really going to be okay. And so they go to this group, their own group, and they say, am I wearing a parachute? And the group looks at them and says, yes, you are. But that's the group who just told the, the, the tissue paper guy he was wearing a parachute. And so this lady sees this, and any comfort that that group wanted to give her was totally evaporated. You tell everyone that. So what comfort does it give me when you tell me that? And so she remains in unnecessary terror when she could have been delighting in solid comfort, looking forward to the rescue. The passage, I think, can best be broken up in our, our particular passage today into the motivations, the reasons for why it's good to judge the church. First one is this. This brings us to our first point. Judge for the sake of the one excluded. And we see this in the first five verses. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5. Okay? In verse 4, though I'm absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This church is embracing and proclaiming a false gospel. They're proclaiming the Lord did not die to rescue people from sin, only that he died to forgive people of sin. They're saying the Lord doesn't love holiness, and neither do his people. The man is involved in this gross adultery, and he has been encouraged by his church membership 
to be confident that he's right with the Lord. That the day of his judgment is in the past and he needs not fear the coming day of God's wrath. But that's a wicked thing for that church to say to him. He might have repented and become a Christian. He might have put on his parachute. He might have come to Christ to make him a piece of gold instead of a piece of straw. But the fact that he had a church was actually hindering him from being saved. We can't be so politically correct that we speed people along to hell. It's sinful and not one bit loving to treat someone as part of your church if they haven't confessed in faith in the gospel and if they do not love holiness. 2 Corinthians, the letter after this, gives us reason to believe that this man, as a result of this action of his church, he realized he actually wasn't saved. He realized that he was indeed a child of the devil. And once he realized it, he repented and believed in Christ and was restored to the church. And so we see here that we're to judge for the sake of the one excluded so that he might be truly included. Second point, we see this in chapter 5, verses 6 to 13. Judge for the sake of the church. We see this in verse 6. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So consider a man who loves the gospel and is truly saved. But he recognizes his weakness and, and he hears the words of 1 Corinthians 12, which tell them that he has a need of the people in his church. And, and he is suffering from a lack of assurance. I don't know. I mean, I know the Lord saves sinners. I know Jesus died and rose from the dead, but is it me he saved? Oh, I want him to be, I want him to save me, but it, am I saved? And his church treats him as a Christian. They're reassuring him that he has reason to believe that he is covered by the blood of Christ. But then he, see, says, he sees that they just said that to a man who wouldn't repent of adultery with his stepmom. Now that assuring work which his church wished to do to him is useless. You say that I'm part of the church, but you say that to everyone. You say I'm a Christian, but you say that to everyone. Or consider a man in the church who is fighting the temptation against pornography and who he is winning, and yet he's getting tired of the fight. He's growing weary in the battle. He's single and he's jealous of those who have marital relations. And it is a grief for him. And he sees that the church affirms the salvation of those who dive into sin and who do not pursue holiness. And so he dives in. But the gospel, Paul reminds us, is that we used to be idolaters. We used to be drunkards and swindlers and homosexuals and thieves and adulterers. But we are no longer because we have been washed. Yes, in our weak and sinful flesh, we will still be tempted to return to those identities and behaviors. But the gospel, the good news is that that's in our past. It's not our current reality. We have been forgiven by Christ. We have been transformed. We have been washed. We have been made new creations. And a fire is coming. And a man who trusts in the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection 
and who trusts in Christ to make him holy, that man can be assured that his judgment has happened in the past. But a man who does not want to pursue holiness, who trusts only a gospel of forgiveness of sin, but not freedom from sin, that man has no reason to be sure that his judgment's in the past. He ought rather to be convinced that his judgment is in the future, and he will not stand. So judge the church for the sake of the church. Third point. Judge for the sake of the world. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 11. We see that. Read a couple of verses here, starting verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to, bro- to law against another, uh, a brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So we see two failures of this church are actually now put together by Paul to show the impact that their witness is to the unsaved world. Two sins. One, on one hand, they're failing to judge sin, sin of sexual, uh, of, uh, sexual morality. And on the other hand, they're asking Caesar to judge what is godly behavior instead of them. You see that? They're basically saying that the word of God in the hands of an ordinary local church is not good enough to know whether or not someone is sinning or not. We can't tell. We can't, we can't tell. We need Caesar to tell us what's sin or not. We can't judge. We're not good at judging. We better let Caesar do it. And then essentially it gets to the point where saying, well, if, if Caesar won't punish me for it, we can allow it in the church. And so Paul later, in other places, he he affirms the role of government, and he demands that the church not get in the way of the government performing their duties. Romans 13, he says that they are ministers of God, and they bear the sword. Even secular governments, they bear the sword on God's behalf. So the church is forbidden from covering up crimes which the government would desire to prosecute, including forms of abuse. But what Paul is getting at here. And now you can see how this context helps us to understand it. He's criticizing the church for refusing to judge between brothers. He sinned against me. And saying it's too difficult for us with the word of God. We better take him to court. We don't know. We can't judge. Caesar's better at that than God. But that's blasphemy. Saying that an ordinary little church armed with God's word and spirit can't know whether its members are right with God or not is foolish. It's like saying God has left us unable to tell the difference between straw and gold. So what witness does the church have then? In a plane with a group of parachute checkers asking people who don't have parachutes to check their parachutes. Now, I want you to see that when we accept you as a body part of this church, if you want to use the word body part rather than member, we can do that. But when we accept you as a member or body part of this church, you know what we're doing? We're telling all of your neighbors, this is what a Christian looks like. This is what it looks like to be someone who will be spared for the coming judgment. This is what it looks like for someone to be able to have confidence that Christ is their Savior. They trust Christ took their punishment and that he rose from the dead. 
And when they sin or confronted, they repent because they love the Lord more than they love sin. So we're saying to the world by embracing you as a body part. We're saying to the world, this person used to be a reviler, used to be a thief, used to be a drunkard, used to be a homosexual, and they still face and fight those temptations, and they may fall into those sins, but it's not who they are any longer. So they can and are brought to repentance because the Holy Spirit in within them. These people are part of the kingdom of Christ, and so they will not be crushed by the kingdom of Christ when his kingdom comes in fullness because they're part of it. Judge for the sake of the world. Fourth, judge for the sake of the glory of God. Last but not least, we're to judge the church for the sake of the glory of God. And it's actually not last because we saw in chapter 3 last week that a church is not our temple but the temple of the holy God. So here Paul addresses that same question from the reality that the church is the body and Christ is the head. Okay, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. You can see that here. Just a couple of verses from there. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality, for every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Verse 20. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is not your body. It's Christ's body. You have been given the glory of being a body part, but not the glory of being the head. Now, he moves to, to give a command against sexual sin, and then he's going to use that as an illustration for church discipline. Okay, you see, first he's going to be talking about sexual sin in, 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 like with an actual individual, and then he's going to use that as an illustration for church discipline for why this is really important, okay? He says, engaging in sexual sin is to join yourself to sin, to join your body and to unite your body to sin, and that's what makes it a particularly dangerous sin. So flee from that. Don't unite your body to sexual sin. And you see in verse 15, I wonder if you can see that, bodies is plural in verse 15. So we know he's talking about the individuals and their uh, approach to sexual sin, okay? So in verse 15, he's talking about individuals, okay? But then in verse 20, did you notice, he switches to talking about the church as a body, singular. See that? Glorify God in your Body, 15 bodies, 20 body. See that? So he's saying the church is not the possession of the preacher, chapter 3. The preacher is not the head of the church. Church as a body is not the possession even of the church. It is a body bought with the blood of Christ. It's his body. So if you shouldn't unite your own bodies to sexual sin because it commits a sin against your body as an individual, how much more should you not unite a church to sexual sin? Because that then is sin against Christ's body. See how he works that? He gives that command and then he uses the command itself as an illustration. The church is not its own. It's not free to dishonor Christ by adding or keeping parts which have not been made holy by the blood of Christ. He glorifies himself in the church by forgiving and also renewing 
sinners, building them for himself into a temple that displays his love and grace and holiness and beauty. See those four reasons why we we are to love the idea of judging the church. I want to apply that here to us fairly specifically. First, there is a number of you who consider this your church but are not yet body parts. You're not members. I hope you can see here that you can't be until you ask the rest of the body. We won't treat you as members, as body parts, until you've asked us. We're not to execute that judgment on you, okay? It would be inappropriate for us to judge you without you asking us to do so. So ask us to add you into our church as a body part. Ask us. If you're trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ to be reconciled to God, we're going to say yes, very happily, okay? We're eager for the day that we can treat you as our Christian. Second, there are a number of you here or who are officially members of this church who don't want us to treat you as body parts. I want you to treat us as members, but not body parts. We don't want the church to watch over us or to graciously offer honest judgment. So if this is you, we would implore you to change your view of church so that we can help each other to know the Lord and have proper confidence in him. Alternatively, let us know that you don't wish to be a body part any longer. It would be inappropriate for us to keep watch over someone's soul who doesn't wish to be kept kept watch over. But then you have to realize that you are a person without a church which is not a description of a man or woman who loves salvation. Third, I want to ask, what does excommunication look like? There's that word, excommunication. Excommunication. Well, first you can see here, we we, we have the option of ignoring the Lord here. He commands it. So we can say, no, no, we've progressed. We're better and smarter and wiser and more loving than God. But that would be very silly because none of us has ever taken the wrath of God for someone. So to claim we're more loving is wicked and foolish. So what does it actually look like? Okay. When a body part of the church, which wishes to remain a body part of the church, stops showing the outward evidence of salvation and refuses to turn from sin, that's what it looks like. One or two other parts are going to warn him lovingly, praying for repentance. But if he doesn't, the church as a whole then decides they can no longer affirm that the man is a Christian. Now, they don't make him a non-Christian, but they give up their responsibility to judge him as a Christian. Hanging out with this man is still a good thing to do, but not as a fellow Christian. You see that? Paul's saying, look, People outside the church, I'm not saying don't hang out with them because then you'd have to leave the world. He's saying just don't hang out with them as fellow Christians. So you don't talk about our Lord anymore. You talk about the Lord. And so you bear no responsibility to examine his life and and certainly do not do anything to assure him 
that scripture would call him a Christian. Don't allow him to use your relationship with him to add to his confidence that he's right with the Lord. Actually, you don't probably treat him worse. He might actually prefer how you now treat him because you're no longer pestering him about these things. Treat him with grace and love. But you treat him as a man who ought to become a Christian and you refuse to judge him as somebody who is a Christian. You see that? There will be a day when the judgment of the Lord comes and to give recompense to men for all their works. When every punishment will, when every unpunished sin will be punished. When the wage of the sin will be fully meted out. When the Lord will have vengeance on his enemies and his hot wrath towards sin will be fully poured out. When he crushes the wicked. When he answers those accusations of those atheists He answers those accusations against him who say that he can't be a good God because he allows injustice. When he answers that, he stops the mouth of all who would accuse him of not bringing justice to evil men. And the Bible speaks of this as fire, as God's wrath being poured out, crushing. And there will be no exceptions. All unpunished sin will be punished in that day. The great and terrible day of the Lord, says the Old Testament prophets, the judgment day. And yet, God so loved the world of rebellious sinners that he sent his son to save a vast number of them, not by denying their judgment, but by taking their sin on his shoulders. And thousands of years before their judgment would take place, he took their judgment. Christ went to the cross to bear the wrath of God for sinners so that we can now look forward to the day when he returns rather than dread it because our day of judgment is in the past. Brothers and sisters, unbelieving guests, believing guests, when you truly behold that God, when the Spirit of God uses the gospel of Jesus to remove the veil of unbelief from your eyes, you see that God as beautiful and glorious. You see him as worthy of glory and praise and affection. And your heart bursts with the, with the conviction that he deserves a holy and glorious temple. And you want him to have nothing less than a holy and glorious temple. And you stand in awe of the gift of grace, of love and mercy. That he has not just merely invited you to behold him in his temple, but he has set you apart to be part of that temple. How worthy is that God of praise in that temple? A holy and pure and righteous and wise and unchanging and merciful God. Until the day we see him face to face, that great day of the Lord, he has promised to bless the gathering of ordinary, small, boring, predictable, foolish-to-the-world-looking churches made of unexceptional sinners. He has promised to form them into temples 
where we can truly behold the king in all his beauty. Such an unlikely and unimpressive church, armed with the word and shaped according to the word, is a gift for his people. And then also to the world. To behold not the worthiness of the church, but of the builder, the savior of the church, on whom they stand and with whose blood they were washed and purchased. I want to close with reading from Hebrews 3, 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of glory, praise. You are holy. And in your love, you sent your son to be crushed so that you could have a people who, though they deserve to be crushed, who have no holiness of their own, could delight in your glory, your holy glory, rather than dread it. Lord, you deserve a holy temple, a holy people, and you have made us that we do not look that way but we know we are clothed in the righteousness and the holiness of Christ and that our judgment for our sin happened 2,000 years ago so we do not dread your return but we long for the day when our Savior will come in glory to judge the living and the dead come Lord Jesus Maranatha